Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest is Jeffrey Wu. He is the CEO and co-founder of HVMN. Uh, really excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So you've been doing a podcast for a while now too, right? What, what is the biggest thing that you've learned from doing your podcast? Yeah, I guess we've been fellow co-hosts or, or a host of podcasts over the last few years. Um, I think a couple things, just one very tactically, I think I've become a much better extemporaneous speaker because you're just having conversations with other smart people for 60, 90 minutes, a couple times a week. You're just getting a lot of reps in and talking to people. So I appreciate just the tactical verbal acuity and fluidity that you gain from just having to record yourself and listen to yourself. Um, but I, I mean, I think probably the more interesting thing I've learned through having a podcast is just having like long form conversations with other smart people. I feel like, I think that's partly the reason why the podcast format has exploded. It just, people don't really have 60, 90 minute long conversations about philosophy, about health, about all these interesting concepts. And I think for better or for worse, today's, this course is pretty quick. It needs to be under five minutes. Got to be snappy. People want to see the Instagram updates or the Twitter posts. Um, so being able to just have interesting, fun, deep conversations with other smart people for an hour or two hours on a variety of topics has been really educational just from a personal level. And hopefully, I think with your you know, the Crazy Wisdom podcast as well as the HVMN podcast, we're able to share some of those conversations with the broader uh, community, the broader world. That is, I mean, it's throwing it back to you. I mean, what's, what's, what have you learned from running crazy wisdom podcast? Exactly. It's very similar to what you just said about the, the ability for me to now have a conversation with anybody anywhere, anytime has just like gone through the roof and yeah. it's really this sense of improv and I actually started doing improv um, about a year ago in order to improve my extemporaneous speech speaking for the podcast itself. And it's just something about having this moment where there's a microphone, there's another person, there's an expectation that it has to be kind of interesting. Uh, and so it just leads to this like weird, great conversation framework. And it's really fun. And then that just yeah. goes on to my other parts of my life as well. Like I'm like now I'm noticing now that I'm in Columbia, I'm 
taking taxis and my conversations with taxi drivers are getting much more interesting. I can go much further <laughs> into the, into what's going on and like have, you know, that uh, Colombian people are also very, very good conversationalists as well. So that's yeah. another key part. Yeah. hundred percent. Yep. So we talked a little bit before this about philosophy what is your philosophy of life for a very broad question? <laughs> wow, we're starting, we're starting very big. Um, what's the best way to describe it? I would say that we, uh, I, I guess, I would say that the, like, I, 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 like the baseline substrate of our reality is nihilistic, meaning that we are biological organisms. Maybe we're part of a simulation. We're in this universe and there is no objective higher order meaning to whatever we're doing. Right. So I think there's no underlying meaning or purpose of this organic evolutionary process of random processes. Mm. Um, but because now that we are in this game, we have this time, we have this consciousness, and we have this semblance of free will to dictate or seemingly dictate how we choose to allocate our time, emotional energy, and all of that, we're all constructing our own individual games to play. And part of these games are in, in, within our head, but part of these games are social games that, for example, we're all part of playing under this notion of capitalism. We all have to create some value for other people so we have some currency to acquire things that we need to survive um so i think to me it's really the underlying i, I so so i think it's just like okay we're all constructing our own our own games our own objective functions on top of a substrate of nihilism or, or meaninglessness and i think each of us are figuring out how to best live a well-lived life under this notion that there's no true objective meaning of what a well-lived well life is. Um, so I think that spawns off interesting smaller conversations or, or sub-conversations around how does one decide one's objective function? How does one live a well-lived life? And I would say that uh, most of us don't really think about this anymore. And I think part of it is that religion used to answer a lot of these questions for us. We would have a pastor or a religious teacher that would tell us what to, what, what objective function to chase after. And I think in our culture today, as religion has been a less important part of overall society, a lot of us, I would say, are in this postmodern existential angst or crisis around finding some meaning. And I think that would be, if there's like any, I would say universal problem with our generation, it's find like finding purpose, finding meaning and, and figuring out what the hell we're all doing on this, on this planet. That was beautiful. Um, one, one thing that just came to mind is this lecture series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis by John Vervecki, V-O-R-V-A-K-A-E or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. I highly recommend it and talks a lot to your point. 
I've got a few questions about that because, uh, well, first of all, I want to reiterate that I agree with that it, religion. I was talk, talking at another interview today with Richard Price from academia.edu today, and we were talking about um, how exactly right religion used to provide us both the mechanisms for why things were the way they were, and then also a meta narrative that gave us all these objective functions. And then science stripped away the me mechanistic thing, destroyed religion in the process, or it seems like it destroyed the previous religions or our faith in them, uh, and then uh, didn't really provide us with this meaning piece, uh, as, as you were just describing. But I have one question. Is how, how do we know it's, it's uh, random? How do we know that it's not according to some sort of objective overarching principle? Because I don't think science has actually proven that wrong. It's just we don't have any evidence for it. Yeah, I think that's a fair critique, a fair point. Um, I think it just like, I, I think to me, what is the default, you know, null, null hypothesis? Mm -hmm. The null hypothesis to me is um, we, there was some sort of big bang event. We were, we're a downstream process of billions of years of random collisions of molecules and some portions of these molecules somehow evolved a consciousness mm -hmm. to be able to perceive events. Um, yeah, there might be, this might, we all might be part of a computer simulation. I think that's like an interesting thought experiment. Um, and there is some grand master plan, but I think the null case is that it, it just, to me, it's like, okay, we're just a cascade of random collisions of particles and some have self-organized into uh, conscious things that we can have this conversation and other people can listen to this conversation. And have you ever tried specifically to adopt the opposite of that null hypothesis and just view the world just as a exercise as if every little thing had meaning? Hmm. Um, I've thought about that case in the sense that how would I act differently if I knew that there was meaning or, or, or a plan for everything? If there was, if we were all part of a computer simulation, you could talk to quote unquote God and try to convince them to uh you know rig the game in your in, in your way if, if you will um I, I well i think that's the beauty of having a strong personal philosophy i want to be able to play in a way that's agnostic to whether it's the there's meaning or no meaning i i think the, a life well lived is having a system that's internally self-consistent where you can play the same mm. right even if there's completely random or there's a purpose you would do the same exact decision making process because you had an internal set of values and objective functions that were consistent internally. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That, and that seems like we're getting somewhere because it doesn't even matter whether there's any meaning or whether there's no meaning. It's like, what are you doing with your life? Would you do exactly. it? Yeah, and, and why are you doing it? Um, that's really cool. So what is your objective function? Have you figured it out? Um, I mean, I guess there's not just one either. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I think, there's one that one objective function that I've been, I would say, been running against, and I'm not sure if like I, I you know, want to be tweaking it or articulating it a little bit a better way. But I think the way I've been thinking about it has been um, basically pursuing uh, experiences that have a couple attributes one attribute is um getting that childlike wonder of novelty or learn something for their first time 
Um, I, I think if you just remember, like I, I just have like a lot of childhood memories, like tinkering with watches, like taking them apart, and you could, I could just be engrossed in that for hours. Or you know, the first time you're playing a video game, or first time ex- getting exposed to some new toy, or new, you know, you go to like a national park for the first time, and you're just like mind is blown away. Um, so, how does one experience more and more of those childlike, wondrous moments? And I think a sub attribute of that, or second, secondary attribute of that, is basically perceiving and living through rarer and rarer experiences that other humans haven't perceived. So, um, so for example, uh, you know, doing a job that a million people have done is less interesting than doing a job that a thousand people have done, right? Like being a, a retail worker is a less of a novel experience as running your own company, which is a less of a novel experience as like running a really large company, which is a less of a novel experience as maybe, you know, being a a leader of a country. Mm. Um, So I would say that if, so, so given those two types of attributes that I think are interesting and relevant uh, to an interesting, like unique life, a unique set of experiences, those are the things that I want to try to be trying to, trying to optimize for my maximize the probability and, uh, uh, I guess, a capacity to experience childlike wonder and rare and rare experiences that are unique to more to, to unique to like other humans. Mm. And I think to me that just means that like you're just living kind of a more unique set of human experiences than other people, mm. right? I, I think all of us have some timeline of different experiences, and I guess. You know, for some arbitrary reason, I feel like having a more unique set of timeline events is just probably like a more well-lived life than a timeline of events that a lot of people have have seen, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think you could imagine like a really standard life, and it's I don't want to judge people for you know doing nine to five jobs for thirty years and and going home and raising a family. Like, I don't think that's necessarily objectively worse or better type of life. I just think it's a more commonplace life than someone who's, you know, I don't know, served in the military, hiked Mount Everest, you know, started a company, failed the company, whatever, ran a city, bankrupted the city, right? Like it, that, that seems like a very, it's like a much more of a unique uh, life lived than something that's just like a lot more normal where a hundred million people have lived that life. And it's from what you just described there, the unique experiences sound like they're also more difficult or require more hard work or harder uh, nuts to crack in order to experience them because there is no pathway to experiencing those things. Um, would you, what, what, do you, what is the relationship to unique, unique experiences and difficult, difficult experiences? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Um, I don't think they necessarily have to be like unique experiences have to be hard to achieve, but, but, uh, but I think oftentimes they do overlap because quote unquote unique experiences, there's just only a few people that get to live that kind of life experience, right? Like there's only 45 US presidents, right? Like there's only like 45 humans that like have lived that kind of experience. Um, 
so yeah i i think so i think that i think is kind of the motivation to be thoughtful have a plan have build systems towards achieve like i guess having maximum optionality to do quote unquote harder things um to me it's not like you know one has to like be the president of the united states or something to like have a well-lived life but i think it's like it's an interesting benchmark or like a like a like a target in terms of okay 45 people have experienced that um what you know there's been you know four ceos that have been on, on top of trillion dollar market cap companies you know there's like all these kind of ways to just like judge and, and, and measure uniqueness mm-hmm. and I, I don't think there's any better or worse decisions i think it's just kind of an interesting heuristic to choose what to focus on uh, so you just gave me an interesting nuance that i hadn't gone into before about optionality and commitment because a lot of people believe it's a binary you have optionality or you try to maintain as much optionality as possible but in order to do that you have to leave some sort of uh you have to not commit to anything but yes there is a, because in order to become pre- president you actually do have to commit to something but you need the yes. optionality to, you need to set it up so that you've got the optionality to pursue that and it makes me think about like Andrew Yang, for example, when did it come into his head, okay, I'm going to run for president now because there's a special opportunity that I see that nobody else sees. Um, and, and so like, I'm, I wonder, and because we have the, you know, things seem stable to most people, things seem like they're going to go on, but then we have these black swans that kind of come in and, and make things different. And so, so there's new opportunity arises from this chaos from, from, these unexpected random occurrences that happen. Um, and so I wonder, yeah, just what is the, I guess, what is the relationship between optionality and commitment? I think that's like, yeah, I think that's a, I, I think most people focus too much on optionality in terms of like their life path. And I think that's maybe like a, like a mistake or they don't necessarily need to be antagonizing forces. I think Andrew Yang is a very interesting example. Mm-hmm. I doubt he thought he was going to run for president since he was 12, right? Like maybe someone like Pete Buttigieg has been like planning his life mm-hmm. to run for president since he was 12. But um, yeah, it seems like to me that Andrew Yang uh, just built up integrity, network, skill sets that have high optionality mm-hmm. in terms of being a political leader or being a company leader or, or being, you know, a community leader. And I think that kind of play is very strong because it works well within a specific domain, but that reputation, that integrity carries over mm. to other domains. So I think in that lens, you want to essentially double down on behaviors that allow you to build up reputation and integrity that's a pretty transferable so i think reputation is like pretty transferable money is pretty transferable mm. having a following is pretty transferable right like we look at donald trump his following for being a tv uh star transferred quite well into political influence right his twitter following and all of that mm. um so I think it's like an interesting, again, a heuristic to think about which assets are worth doubling down into. Mm. Uh, yeah, money is quite fungible. It feels like influence is quite fungible. You know, again, if you have a, 
the, like, I think you could find counterexamples for like maybe a Hollywood celebrity isn't able to transfer that popularity into political power. But again, like maybe Brad Pitt can't do it, but clearly Donald Trump was able to do it. Um, but I can imagine that like, like people with well-known high integrity, like someone like Warren Buffett or, you know, who seems to have a very good reputation or maybe Bill Gates, who has burnished his reputation over, you know, after like 20 years of philanthropy, I think they would do quite well transferring that really good reputation into political power because uh, I, I think, I think those kind of that, that platform, that credibility, that, that recognition is actually much more transferable than, than one would think. Hmm. Now I want to go into what are some things that aren't transferable because that's a really good example of, of Brad Pitt. Um, and well, and it makes me think about anti-fragility as well, because nobody knew that Donald Trump would have that. I mean, well, some people knew, but very, very few people knew that, <laughs> that Donald Trump would have that fungibility of his, of his popularity and be able to fund it. Now, you know, in hindsight, we were able to see that, but, uh, so, it, but it makes me think about anti-fragile because Donald Trump is, if anything, very anti-fragile. The more that people attack yes. him, the more the, the more he just he grows. I was just I yes, watched yes. this clip on on Twitter, uh, which was from like March 2017 to today. They took out from MS, MSNBC all the big media. They took out um, and spliced it all together. Uh, the the anchors saying it's the end for Donald Trump. The walls are closing in, and they just throughout like two years they continued to <laughs> to say that. Um, and, yeah. and and it's you know still to this day, and and they're not going to impeach him. It doesn't seem very like a, a Republican dominant dominated Senate is not going to impeach, impeach Donald Trump. So I don't, I don't think that's right. going to happen. So yeah. Th- wh- what is your relationship to anti-fragile fragility and where, what do you think about it? Well, I think about, I, I mean, I think exactly how to spend my time on things on assets or on things that are anti-fragile. Right. I think, um, so I think, yeah, I think preserving reputation is super high leverage, preserving cash, which is again, fungible, right? Like someone's dollar is the same. I don't care if it's your dollar or someone else's dollar. Like that's like just like a pretty, it's a very fungible asset. Um, I'm just trying to think like, what are things that like don't transfer well? Um, I mean, I guess like things that, like commoditized skills probably mm. like it's not super worthwhile to get really you know obsessed with just you know a specific tool set that might get outdated i'm just thinking maybe like you know if you're a really good audio you know dj you, like just getting really really good mastery around like one specific tool set is less valuable than understanding you know what about you know, audio tuning is, is valuable and being able to translate that into like a useful, something that's reputationally useful or is much more towards end work product than like just a specific like commoditized skill set. Um, so, but I, I, that's not to say that like, like technical skills or commoditized skills aren't valuable, but I think it's just really realizing that those are just really building blocks to something that are much more fungible, much more translatable. So I think all of us need like hard technical skills at some level, like kind of menial commoditized skills. But I think the question is how do you convert that commoditized skill into building blocks that 
can translate across domains. Yeah. Um, and that's why I think you see like people with really high leverage go from maybe like line engineers and then end up being like entrepreneurs or people that were like policy experts in one specific narrow part of counterterrorism or economic policy. Like to really get influence, you have to be more of a generalist, right? So I think it's being able to turn your specialist skill set but that be able to be able to adapt it into the general and into, into generalizable uh, skill sets. Yep. And because in order to build an audience, it's much easier as I've been finding with this show, which is very broad and, uh, and, and it, well, at least I have difficulty uh, talking about it in a way that's very specific, but I've found that it, uh, it is easier to build an audience if you have a very specific niche and you specialize in that niche, but then to go to a broader mainstream, then you have to then, go out to a uh, bigger mainstream, unless that niche is really big, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, yeah, you evolve your, your influence and grow it in a, in a kind of a natural way. Mm-hmm. But I think you're exactly right. Like I think you have to start with some, you know, probably start with some niche. Cause I think you, you need to have some sort of consistency to build some sort of rhythm. And then, as, as you get more and more momentum or comfortable, like these like these things compound, they can translate that to other domains. And this kind of goes back to uh, the uh, objective function and finding the objective function for each individual and that how that is really necessary if you're gonna do anything and find that, to find that childlike wonder again. Um, because I th- this, it, with science that took away the mechanics of why things work and, and explained them with very, very fine, intricate detail. But in order to take lessons from science, we have to speculate and scientists don't like to speculate uh, uh, <laughs> because they know that they're, they're going to be wrong. And so it's like really hard to dry get these overarching meta meanings, which I think is why people like Jordan Peterson who provide the connective tissue for um, what science is offering are so getting so popular these days um, because we desire, we desire that meaning. And for those of us who can kind of find it for ourselves, uh, we can do it. But I mean, a lot of that is actually is, is, is I think from, you know, watching things that help us find that meaning by people who have found it for themselves. Um, so, so yeah, I don't really have a point there, but what, what do you think about that? No, I, I think that's, I think describing again why the podcast youtube influencer lecture series have grown insanely popular right it's like i don't think anyone would have thought that watching a two-hour jordan peterson debate would be like interesting for more than like 50 people but like these are like millions of views right million probably billions of hours of his content consumed and and, and he's basically being your dad. He's just like, clean your room. Like, here's some rules of how to be a good person. And uh, here's some science evidence base of why I've come up with some of these rules. And, and people want that. I think, like, we've just counter-swung too hard from religious dogma of, like, this is the one way to live to now every, you can live any way you want. There's no rules. We're in a post-modern society. We can choose anything and i think i i feel like we're, now we're in the counter reaction where it's like okay we've swung too far where now no one has any direction or meaning and people actually want a meaning and i think 
that's why people, I know, I think partly of how I discovered your podcast was I was interested in hearing what uh, Dr. Kapil Gupta, Sita uh, Performance was talking about. And I, he had two really good conversations with him. And I think we're all searching for, okay, how do we, how does one think about like the craziness, the arbitrariness of life? And, and how does one have a systemized approach to think about and incorporate all these nuances of day-to-day decisions into, into like a, a world of life? And I would say that, and not to sound arrogant, but I would say that most people don't even think about it, don't, aren't even self-aware to that level. I feel like people that are tuning to this podcast or tuning to these kinds of conversations are more attuned towards realizing that one should probably have a meaning, a direction, and not just living for the weekend, not just living for the next paycheck, not just living for the next chance to go out and swipe on Tinder. Um, mm. and, and I think, right, because I think that, like, again, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to judge people, but I feel like a lot of people are just, like, not really even processing beyond just the next weekend. Mm-hmm. And I think the people that are trying to look for these long-form conversations, looking for... Uh, you know, listening to conversations like these, listen to Jordan Peterson, listen to other, you know, podcast hosts. I think, I think these, I think they're really playing a role of religion again. Mm. So one thing I've been thinking about is that Jordan Peterson, I think someone like Joe Rogan, right? Like these podcast hosts are really becoming the modern version of a pastor where they're setting some orientation around what is important to think about, what is of value. and people can kind of tune in and go to this church and go to this pastor and listen in and see if they like what they're talking about and incorporate it into their lives. So I feel like in some weird way, the podcast, the YouTube influencers are kind of backfilling religion in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and why it's, well, people want someone to help orient what is meaningful. Mm. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I've had the same thought. And there is a, a question I've been coming up with recently, which is what are the YouTube documentary or the YouTube videos that will be considered as scripture by uh, future religions? Um, and yeah, I think you're right that, that, that they're serving some sort of like binding thing which is really interesting because it's also asynchronous. Whereas before in the 1960s and 1970s, there were interviews like this and there were conversations like this and long form things and kind of an intellectual um, debate. And it happened a lot through reading, which I guess was asynchronous reading articles and and journals and stuff, but also on television. And so now we've have a new form and it's asynchronous and it's, a little bit after more after the 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 scientific kind of under underpinnings of, of religion of, or science has taken out the underpins of religion so interesting um yeah well i would say that i think we're just defining a new new substrates for people to base their their, their structure on so i think it's actually kind of interesting the thought experiment like which youtube content or which podcast will be seminal thought pieces that people refer to, right? Like if you just think about religious texts, um, whether they're, you know, Zen Cohen's or the old Testament or different books of 
you know, different religious texts, right? Like they're, they're essentially scholarly writings or scholarly discussions with people at the time, whether it's transcribed through, you know, through human form of word from God or, you know, someone being really smart and thinking about some, some moral guidelines for people. Um, I think it's not a crazy thought experiment to be like, yeah, you know, YouTube is going to just in 5,000 years or in 2000 years, is just going to be as ancient of a mm. testament as, as someone, you know, writing the Quran down or someone writing uh, the Bible down or someone writing a Zen Cohen, you know, a, a, one of the Zen Cohen books down. Right. Uh, and using those as building blocks to formulate and, and guide what a life all lives. I think, I, I mean, it sounds kind of silly now. It's like, Oh yeah. Like YouTube is going to be part of like religious scripture, but it, it's, it's, I think it's very, very relatable to, okay, well, you know, some random shepherd wrote some whole, some, some stuff down uh, 2000 years ago. And now this is like considered Holy scripture. Why, why can't that, that text um, be in a digital form for the next 2000 years where in 2000 years, everything happening in the early 21st century is going to be mystical and, 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 and has this like magical, this magic, it's magicness of like it being ancient. Mm. Oh, there's something I'm losing it now. Um, oh yeah. It's the outrage. Uh, so it's so interesting because it seems like from my understanding, we had the axial age and the axial age was a time in, you know, 400 BC where you have all the Greeks and you have the people in India developing these psycho technologies for mindfulness and meditation. And then in, in Greece, you have philosophy and this kind of explosion of just uh, really, really deep wisdom. Uh, and then it all just disappears off the face of the planet for, for, for up until about 900 AD, which is, which is where we start to get um, this, the rise of tantric yoga in, uh, in Kashmir, India. Um, and, so it's like wiped off the face of the planet. And then over the last 400, 500 years, we've had this cycle of, of people, you know, like the, the word creativity wasn't ever used until the 17th century by a poet, by a Polish poet. And the, you know, the religious establishment was like, you cannot use that word. That word is only used for God. Um, and then you have like, God is the only one who can create. And, and then you have Galileo who says, um, you know, whatever he said, and then, and then the church kind of takes him out. And, and then, you know, like I remember reading, I think it was John Steinbeck and they, you know, how in the early 1900s, the, the kids would be dancing and all the adults would be like, oh, those dancers, you can't, that's evil, that's the devil. And so it's this like backlash between um, new idea and then tradition and then new idea and then tradition, and they fight. And now it seems like we're in this place where it's like all of the old traditions have been, have been thoroughly like wiped off, you know, we don't need any of that stuff anymore. Like, as you said, that kind of postmodernist modernist thing. And then we've got that coming back to it as well. Um, and it seems like we're like, we're really like, even like Trump is a symbol as a president, like he is the ultimate symbol of that. Cause it's like, he has outraged so many people. Um, and, and yet it is, uh, it is not affecting in the, in the market as well. And like the markets, why is Australia on fire right now? And the markets basically have not responded at all. Um, it's so interesting. <laughs> that, that yeah. they're, they're in, and then it seems like what we're headed for is a future where there's going to be a small elite who has a pop, who has a large percentage of wealth and then everybody else doesn't. Um, 
and it's 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 really weird i don't know what to i don't know where we're, where we're headed yeah yeah i want to i think i can respond to a couple points there i think it's definitely seems like there's like count swings and counter swings throughout history. I, I guess like for me, I'm not convinced it's so clear that there are these like broad, very distinct, mm. you know, reactions and counter reactions. I feel like world the, the humanity is so big mm. and in so many sub threads that I feel like it's a constant dialectic where people are constantly counteracting off of each other. And I think maybe with historians writing their thesis, they can say, oh, I'm going to just define this block as idea A. And then 50 years later, it just turned into idea B. And there was like a very clean counter shift. Um, I think it's just a constant dialectic of argument and refinement of of idea and counter idea. just like I think maybe like fashion is like an interesting way to think about it. Like bell bottom jeans or tight jeans, like they kind of just keep swing all the time. And then the hipsters kind of do the opposite of what is mainstream. And I think it's just like it's just if you just choose which time period and which group of people, you can you can create a narrative of one specific story. I think so. I think my point is that I, I I'm not a historian, but I would suspect that it was not that clear in terms of you know deep thought disappeared and then like introspective thought came back i think there's always been i I would say that every generation every group there's always been people thinking and and introspecting on on meaning and and truth and how to live a a well-lived life Mm. um and but i would say that i think the modern era is an interesting time period like i i i I i'm like very cognizant of you know fallacy of you know, our own experience, right? Like every generation thinks that they're like the most interesting generation, right? Like some like cognizant of like not wanting to fall in that fallacy. But I think if you just look at t- the availability information, that does seem to be a real shift, a real paradigm shift from any previous generation where, I, I don't know, without Twitter, we would have never connected. We, we like, we wouldn't have been able to communicate. And then I don't know how many, you know, X people are going to listen to this. Like the, our ability to transmit information is much, much bigger than ever. And our ability to acquire information is much, much bigger than ever. So that I think is like an interesting argument why this specific generation's an interesting time of discourse. Um, and uh, like, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but my, my sense is that I think because there's more demand for conversations like these, I think my sense is that, you know, humans are adapting to, to basically this like very quick transactional culture looking for deeper conversations. And I think that, and hopefully that, that creates a better society for all of us. Um, And then your prediction that, you know, your view that, hey, the market's going to just kind of keep empowering winners and you're going to have like these big economic winners and a lot of essentially economic serfs. Um, I think uh, that's not a, I think that's like a reasonable prediction of how the markets will go. I think that's essentially how capitalism is structured. Uh, winners get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and hopefully, uh, 
our our market capitalism is able to enforce capitalism, meaning that like we actually have rules of, of fair play. Mm-hmm. If 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 you let capitalism run unfettered, then you have like a couple monopolies owning all of capital, and then there's no market anymore, and that's where capitalism eats itself. So hopefully. I, I'm not. I don't know if we're getting close to that or not. I think that's definitely like a regulatory politics question. We can maybe explore, but hopefully our leaders, both on the regulator and on the political side, can help maintain a marketplace. And I think a marketplace of ideas, a marketplace of companies, a marketplace of products is definitely, you know, a good system. It's created all this progress, uh, but we need to make sure that like capitalism doesn't break or eats itself. Or then you have Amazon that owns everything. It's like, okay, then you don't have a marketplace anymore. This goes into like the fundamental question of the universe, I would say, is, is uh, what is the balance? What is the appropriate dynamic balance between decentralization and centralization? Uh, this Kashmir tantric yoga that uh, came up in the ninth century had a really interesting innovation when it came to uh, viewing reality. Previous to that, um, at least within Indian yoga philosophy, the uh, Patanjali transcendental yoga, we're going to escape life because life is just an illusion. That was the kind of thing that they got out of that. Um, And then ninth century came along and said, no, no, life is, it is important to have our practice both transcendent, meaning that uh, there is this transcendent element of of life, but also imminent that it's right here, right now. And that the, the point of life is to be here right now. They came up with this kind of philosophy where in every phenomena, every experience that we have, there are um, three modes of, so arising, sustaining, and then falling away. Uh, So like when I look outside the window, a new experience of looking outside the window is arising. uh, And then I, and then it sustains itself for a bit. And then as I transfer my, eyes back to the computer, a new one is arising uh, and then sustaining it over and over and over again. Can, you can use this to look at any phenomena that's currently happening. And so there's those three modes of being. Um, and then there's two extra modes of being that are onto that, which are, is my awareness contracted? Um, and I'm, am I aware of myself as the subjective entity where I'm experiencing this? Uh, or am I contracted and fully stuck in the experience. Uh, and that doesn't mean to be a moral judgment on whether each, any of the, either one of those are good or bad. Uh, but essentially it's this centralization and decentralization, uh, which goes back to the big bang. It's like you have this little point and everything was in that point and then it exploded. Um, and, and it goes into the monopolies and everything like that. Cause it's like, it'd be very unhealthy if we were to have a whole bunch of, companies riding around being in monopolies. Um, uh, and then, so the government has this role, but then what is the appropriate role? And I guess that's getting into politics and, um, which is interesting right now. Uh, what do you think about all that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting in terms of, I think that's why I'm personally interested in philosophy. I think some of these core questions in ninth century, you know, tantric thinking is somewhat applicable to how we think about modern day, you know, tech monopolies, which I think is a funny way to just like connect 
how some of these core questions keep, I think are, are, are the same, regardless of how it manifests into like a specific instance of, oh, we're talking about Amazon, or we're talking about, you know, you know, how, how one perceives experiences. Um, I mean, I think, I, I think my take on it is that capitalism is a good system in the sense that you need competition to create progress. Uh, you want that chaos of competition and people fighting in this marketplace of ideas to see who comes out on top. Because competition breeds out, you know, and, and really purifies the, and the, the cream rises to the top, right? And I think we all know that that's how sports works, right? Like, we don't just kind of a priori choose who's the best baseball player or basketball player. It's like compete and then someone wins. I think that is generally like a good, fair way to just see who kind of who shakes out. Um, I think when you create a monopoly, like say Amazon owns 99% of everything, then you have no competition anymore. So that's when capitalism breaks, like it, it's eaten itself. Um, and I think it's an interesting argument whether that's already happened. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's an interesting a couple observations where, for example, like Amazon has uh, essentially an understanding with its shareholders that doesn't need to report profits. Mm-hmm. So it can keep investing and investing, investing in infrastructure and building a bigger and bigger moat mm-hmm. for their direct competitors like Walmart. They need to report 20%, 30% EBITDA, you know, profit margins quarter over quarter. And they need to return dividends to their shareholders. And of course, if you report profits, you have to also pay taxes. So you have one company that doesn't have to pay federal income taxes because they never have to report profit because, and then that allows them to invest at a much, much, much more aggressive pace than like its main competitor, which has to basically to maintain its shareholder base, has to report dividends and therefore pay taxes. Um, So that's an interesting dynamic where the, the, the surging company is getting stronger and stronger and stronger over time. Um, and then at a certain point, it's no longer economic. It's no longer beneficial for the end consumer that you have one entity that controls all of commerce. Um, so again, I think there's like arguments why Amazon's not a monopoly, right? Like e-commerce is like some sub 10% of all overall commerce. Mm-hmm. I think, again, I think it's going to be one of the challenges of regulators and politicians over the next 10, 20 years to help manage this. I think that's like part of the discourse in Silicon Valley. Um, when do we want the government to step in? And I think it's like a funny question because like oftentimes you don't really want the government to step in on stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone hates how DMV is run. It's like, okay, I, who, who is going to be making these decisions for, you know, Amazon generally, I think people like Amazon. It's like a good service. We're all voluntarily using Amazon. Um, so it's a little bit above my pay grade. Like what is the exact threshold to like do it in action? But I'm just like, I think as an observer, as someone interested in markets, it's definitely something I've been just kind of observing. I think that the magic red line for me is that it gets to, you know, Amazon gets pricing power. There's no real competitor anymore. Mm. And they can, they can jack up margins anytime they want. Then, 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 then capitalism breaks. There's no competition for them anymore. They, they, have, they have monopoly pricing power. And then we need to recreate a competitive dynamic. And that's where, you know, a role of a benevolent government should come in and help recreate a, a competitive marketplace. 
Well, this is really interesting because there's something else that I've previously, you know, when Roosevelt created his whole um, uh, antitrust law, that was when the United States was, I mean, it was globalized, but it was like the, most of the industries in the United States were focused on the United States. Um, yes. And, and like same with every other country. But now we seem to be in a place where there is this sort of global economic order uh, that is supranational, so above any sort of one nation state. Yes, yes. And Amazon doesn't, you know, Alibaba is, 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 is definitely a competitor. So I wonder about what has changed in order for this global kind of economic order, which goes into this whole question of globalization, which I'm always interested in as well as like where are we heading with it. Um, and then another- No, I- I was just going to respond to that point really quickly, which is the fact that I think this gets even more interesting because, yes, you think about global technology, like these companies are truly global. These are these are these are like massive, like the Amazon is worth more than like basically ninety five percent of countries. I mean, it's, it's like if you, if you if you are Jeff Bezos, you are uh, close to a dictator of like a top ten country in the world in terms of economic power and then i think it's an interesting dynamic when you have nation states and state-sponsored corporations also in the mix yeah and that's why i think china is very interesting you reference alibaba there's there's giant chinese entities that are pseudo possibly state-sponsored pseudo communist party affiliated not very clear not very transparent and then it's an interesting question: um, Are American companies actually competing with pseudo corporate but pseudo government arms of foreign countries? And how does that how does like how does that dictate how Americans and how we should be dictating policy if our companies are competing with state uh, factions essentially, like or or, or or facades of actually state in, institutions? I think that's like an interesting can of worms that I don't think anyone solved. I think that's part of the trade war. I think that's part of all the things that we're re-looking at. And I, and I, and I think it's like, and it's not been solved before. Like there hasn't been corporate, like corporations with this much power, with this much kind of conflict between uh, state-owned assets versus corporate-owned assets. I, I, it, I think it's very complicated. Yeah. And it, it essentially, and this goes into the overarching question that we've been talking this whole time is just like, we are we are the experiment right now. We're experimenting over the kind of uh, neoliberal uh, market-driven um, orientation we've had for the last 20, 30 years since the the wall fell, um, versus a quasi-state-run, internet-connected, uh, you know, massive supranational <laughs> company. Um, yeah. It's and we are part of the experiment, and we're 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 about to figure it out uh, which one works better for the long term, and which one becomes the kind of standard until whatever else comes after that. Um, yeah, I think that's like actually kind of an intellectual. Um, you know, this is something I've been thinking a little bit about. It's, <clears throat> you know, does competition break now? Because like, if there are keystone technologies that change the game, if someone, if a company can make general AI. And that like changes the game or there's like they make cold fusion and you have like infinitely cheap power and then you can overpower every other country. Um, I think like traditionally American innovation through startups, through bottoms up approaches have worked. 
and I think that's been the model of the last like a hundred years, right? Like U.S. companies are leaders by far of of technological innovation. I'm just curious if that dynamic changes, where you have top-down state champions who basically get unfettered resources. If some foreign government's like, "Hey, I'm gonna give your company." infinite tax subsidies and infinite money and like i'm going to pump all the best talent into your entity and you make general ai and then you're going to like just take out everyone else like this is kind of a top-down quite a kind of control economy i'm just wondering does a control economy when there's very clear keystone technologies to drive towards does that change um whether the bottoms up capitalism structure works or are there certain cases where top-down economic structures actually might win? And I think that's literally like going to be how the uh, how the world unfolds uh, unfolds in the next you know coming decades. Like that is the experiment being run. <laughs> and um, and if it and if it does go towards that state thing, I think we have to give up a fair amount of our macroeconomic theory for the past hundred years um, because, according to my knowledge, and I am not at all. An expert in uh, economics at all, but I, I believe what we've what, what the consensus is is that it, that bottom ups approach is the best way to find innovation and to play is the best way to find innovation and you can't uh, buy your way into innovation kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I I generally agree. I'm just wondering if the games have changed. If there are just a couple keystone game-changing technologies and it's just like all right who's gonna who which country which government's gonna have the or with all the conviction to bet super hard into it mm -hmm. right like we already know how to crisper humans right like the uh, you know the, the research out of china you know head jane kuai i believe he like recently got put in jail but he was like he crispered humans right he genetically engineered embryos and tried to give them AIDS immunity, and there was like a sub factor that gave them cognitive potential cognitive improvement benefit, mm -hmm. right? So, we we know we can genetically modify humans at the embryo level, at the at the uh, and, and 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 make potentially better humans. It's and, and and you can imagine if there was some some entity that's like, okay, I'm gonna put a trillion dollars into this, and we're gonna just go. Mm. Right. And like, is that going to really change? Cause, it, Cause that changed the game. Mm. Interesting. Because then like maybe if you have a thousand super genius babies and they're going to, you put them to uh, making general AI and make better, even better super babies. And maybe you come out in 30 years and you have like, you just skip a couple levels of technology. Mm. I feel like, some of these questions were um, addressed in the book Nexus by Ram, uh, Ram Nerez. Um, highly recommend that book, not in terms of the genetic engineering stuff, but that, I'd, I'd be curious about any cyberpunk books that are going into that. Now, do you read cyberpunk at all? Yeah, I, uh, that's actually one of my favorite genres, actually. I think uh, I like reading sci-fi. I think it's, it's just refreshing, I think, just to think outside of, and I think it's a refreshing to just step out of like reality for a second and just like live 
vicariously in some like fantastical future mm. it's just cool right like I, it would love to just see a universe where we can have light speed travel see different worlds all, all these cool technologies bio you know implants the extra senses um yeah very interesting yeah. um well we should probably wrap up but how can people find out more about you and find out more about your company uh yeah i'm i'm pretty findable online uh my personal handles are uh jeffrey Wu, g-e-o-f-f-r-e-y-w-o-o uh primarily on instagram and twitter and then i run a company called hvmn healthy and modern nutrition we're focused on human performance and ketogenic ketogenic performance and metabolic health um hvmn.com and as part of that we run a podcast called hvmn podcast so look us up there as well and if you had one suggestion for a, a podcast to listen to uh w- which one would it be <laughs> or a sp- one specific episode yeah. or one specific podcast one specific um, po- podcast episode from your podcast um i would say that a lot of our podcast is focused on nutrition health and performance so that's a lot of where our our, our podcast content is geared towards but um um you know like I, I think one of the things i guess i'm kind of proud of is helping kickstart the notion of intermittent fasting in silicon valley mm-hmm. so if you look at some of our fasting conversations like this is like two three years ago right at the beginning of when fasting being popular in silicon valley there's a couple of good conversations with some of the leading uh researchers and doctors in the space like dr jason fong um Professor Tim Noakes, a lot of the folks in the low carb, intermittent fasting, kitchen communities. Those would be good places to start there. Very cool. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. This this is very, very fun. Yeah, likewise. Uh, yeah, hope to continue the conversation. This is a fun one. Sure.